When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? May the Lord add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Father, again, as we come to the time when we open up your word, help us to have clarity of mind. Help me to have clarity of speech as I share what we have studied and prepared for. May you be glorified. We know that eschatology is an area that a lot of people struggle with and I'll be the first to admit that I do not have all of the answers, but we know one thing for sure, and that is that the Lord Jesus Christ one day will return, and I pray that we will be ready. Help us to live our lives in such a way that when the Lord returns, that we will not be ashamed at his coming, that we will not be doing anything that would give us any grief or that we would be living in such a way that we are enjoying the sin and these bodies which you have redeemed. I pray, Lord, that in every aspect of our life that we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ, again, being confident in the promises that have been given to us, knowing that all things that we have are because of Jesus Christ and because of what we find in books like Ephesians chapter 1 and all the spiritual blessings that we have in heavenly places, all for the glory of God. I pray, Lord, again, that we would be attentive and that there would be no distractions, either inside or out, that would keep our minds from the Word of God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I failed to mention, but in the bulletin this morning, I want to encourage you, we have, Sister Karen has been placing these uh, in the bottom. We actually have... Uh, questions and answers. This is based off of Charles Spurgeon, a uh, British pastor uh, in the, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle for a number of years in the 1800s. And he wrote a catechism that was designed to be able to help uh, moms and dads and children to be able to have a better understanding of theology. Theology is important. We were talking about this last night with our flock care leaders. And theology should drive everything that we do in our lives. It should affect the kind of music that we listen to. It should affect the way that we respond to one another and the interactions that we have between husband and wife, between uh, colleagues and whether you're going to school or whatever it may be. And teaching you learning these things are going to be helpful to be able to teach your children or your grandchildren so that they may know, they may have an answer one day to be able to give to others who will ask them of the reason, the hope that is within them. But to be able to do it with meekness and fear. This is why we do some of the things that we do. Well, why we should do all the things that we do is to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to go through those questions. 
to, to find a passage of scripture maybe that you and your family can learn together or you can use those questions and memorize the verses that are on there. Now some people may say, I can't memorize, it's so difficult, I don't have a very good memory. Well, ask the Lord to be able to give you the memory to be able to memorize scripture. You know, it's amazing, we can memorize sports statistics, we can memorize, uh, our kids can watch a movie or a cartoon a couple of times and they can recite the entire script. Uh, so we can memorize scripture if we just set our mind to it. So I encourage you to do so. So let's continue with our walk through John's vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come, we have gone through five seals total. The first four seals, of course, from the first part of Revelation chapter 6, we saw him looking at, firstly, a white horse. This represented uh, the one who would come and a powerful force who would eventually be, uh, uh, the Antichrist would be a part of this, and it will produce a false peace. You know, there are many who look around and they say, well, we want peace in the world, but true peace will never come until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he brings ultimate peace to this world. He establishes his permanent kingdom. We saw, secondly, that things begin to degrade, and the second horse was the red horse, and this brings war. Of course, we know if you've been following the news, it would be, you would be hard-pressed not to realize what's going on in places like Ukraine and with Russia and the multiple conflicts that are going on around the world. This end times, though, that I believe that we are speaking about here, that John was given the ability to see that this will be a time that is completely unprecedented. We look at events like World War I. If you like to read history or you uh, have, have read history, whether it's like World War I or World War II or the Korean War, Vietnam War, you will know that war is not a pretty thing. In war, people die. People have to struggle. In fact, this last week they were talking uh, what's going on in Taiwan. Anybody been following that? And they have been saying uh, that in the first few days that there would probably, if we go to war with China over Taiwan, there is likely to be over 2 million people that are killed within the first two weeks. This is best estimates. And it's certainly not going to be an easy time before all of this comes down because we see, I believe, what we see here is the wrath of man or the wrath of the evil one who works through the forces who are here. You see, God gives everything. He created everything perfectly in the garden. And when Adam and Eve fell, what happened? Everything fell with it, even creation. And we know that even creation, as Romans tells us, Paul writes, and he says that even creation longs to be released from the turmoil that it is in. And one day it will be. We then find the third seal. The third seal refers to famine. In the world today, there is approximately, I, I think I mentioned, I don't have my notes here in front of me, but I think that there is fully 25% of the world's countries who struggle right now who are under some kind of famine or lack of food. If you have been, again, following the news, you will know of places like North Korea where they struggle and they are estimating that within the next two or three years there may very well be another half million to a million people who will starve to death in North Korea alone. Just as happened back in the 90s. 
We then read of the fourth seal, and the fourth seal was the writer's name was Death, and hell followed him. They were given the authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. This will not be a very pretty time. It never ceases to amaze me when I share with people the truth of God's word and I encourage them if they do not know the Lord or if they do not have a testimony to know where they stand before God. And yet there are so many people, even some sitting in church, and it may be that you're sitting here this morning, you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you are willing to take your chance with the Almighty. For several years, I worked in the funeral industry. Many of you know, and I have shared with you before, that during that time, I had the privilege of being able to help families, not just as a funeral director and working in the cemetery industry, but I also preached a total of 273 funerals as chaplain of four funeral homes. Of all of those funerals that I taught or that I preached at, I only knew three of the people. The others were all strangers. Every family member always said the same thing. They died too soon. I know what it's like to go to a home and pick up a teenager who has hung himself. I know what it's like to go and pick up somebody who thought that they were just going home to their family, 38 years old, on a motorcycle at the end of a shift and got run over by a van driven by an 18-year-old boy. Nothing malicious whatsoever. There was no drugs in his system. There was no alcohol. He was just at the wrong place at the wrong time, humanly speaking. I know what it's like to bury somebody who's 105. But I also know what it's like to bury a child or a stillborn. And when our time comes, there is nothing you are going to be able to do about it. Over this last week, as we mentioned last week, also 1.2 million people have gone out into eternity. The fact that you are here this morning should make you want to call out to God for mercy if you don't know him. The fact that he has allowed you one more week to live. The graciousness and the mercy and the long-suffering and the patience of Almighty God. For those of you who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you may well remember. I know I remember the exact time I knew where I was. I could tell you where I was kneeling in a particular office when the Lord Jesus Christ came and arrested my heart. And you may not be able to pin it down that close, but if there has been a change in your life and the Holy Spirit has gotten a hold of you, you will know that there is a change and others around you will also know that there has been a change. You see, one of the things when you come here and, and, and we want to not just encourage you to look for the changes, but we don't want to be like every other church in Cheyenne. Not because we're the only ones with the truth, because I believe that there are other churches that do and there are other pastors who are striving to be able to teach the truth of God's word. But God has brought you here for a very specific reason on a very specific day. And when we come before him and we recognize our need of a savior, it will help us to remember as well as we look through these seals that we are not appointed as children for wrath. We should be thankful for that. We then looked last week 
had a very tough seal, and that was the seal of the martyrs who were under the altar, those who had been slain. And we gave multiple examples of those who have given their life for the sake and for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a martyr is a wonderful privilege that God gives. Shall the servant be greater than his master? What if God calls us one day to serve in that capacity, to be a martyr for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ? My dad was sharing in the Sunday school this morning, uh, God will not give us dying grace until it's time for us to die. He will not give us the grace to be able to endure trials or tribulations or times of persecution until he is ready for us to go through that. And when we do go through that, he will bring honor and glory to himself. And in doing so, he will make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ, more like his son. So now we come to the sixth seal. Now there are various perspectives and we want to, we want to be able to admit that I have a handout that I'm going to use in the next, uh, in, in the, the next one that we will be doing on chapter 7, the next message, which will Lord be willing be in two weeks But I just want to state that I know and understand that there are various perspectives, maybe even here this morning, in regards to eschatology. Now that's a big long word and it simply means the study of the end times. Now we can find ourselves in the weeds pretty quickly. We can look and we can see all kinds of stuff. There have been multiple books that have been written, everything from you know, seeing Apache hit 64 helicopters in Revelation to those who think that everything in Revelation has already taken place. Some are more adamant than others in what they believe, and yet I am convinced that in giving an answer, or being able to give an answer to everyone who asks us, as we mentioned earlier, the reason of our hope does not mean that we fall out with everyone who disagrees with us on every point of doctrine. Amen. As mentioned before, there are primary doctrines that are the criteria for gospel fellowship. For example, we are not going to be able to be in gospel fellowship with another church or a group of people who do not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is a non-negotiable. We're not going to call somebody brother and sister if they are not truly one of God's children. Now, unfortunately, even within modern evangelicalism, there are many who are actually stating from the pulpit, well, we are all God's children. We're all brothers and sisters. No, I'm afraid we're not. You see, if you do not have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, you do not belong to him. It's easy for us to say, well, John 3, 16 We can probably all say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But have you gone on to read the rest of the chapter? John chapter 3 verse 36 that says that the wrath of God, if you do not believe on God, the wrath of God still abides on you today. It is important to understand this verse in John 3.36 as we go through this sixth seal. Now, there are some doctrines that I believe that we can, and I'm not going to seek to belabor this this morning, but I believe that there are some that we can agree to disagree on because they do not affect either the operation of the church and more importantly, they do not affect whether we truly belong to Christ or not. 
Now the standard joke, for example, when you're talking about the millennial period, you have some who are all millennial. And again, we will have this in a chart for you in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But you have some who are all millennial. All meaning no millennial period. That means that they simply do not believe that there is an actual literal 1,000 year kingdom. There are some who would be Premillennial, that means that the Lord Jesus Christ will return before the thousand years and then he will establish his kingdom. And the standard joke is, well, what are you? I'm a panmillennialist. That means that I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. Well, the reality is there are still questions that I have and I almost went with a different message this morning because I still don't have all the answers. But I'm seeking to understand. I have probably read nine or ten different commentaries in trying to prepare for this one message alone, and I wish I could give you a clear-cut answer, open the verse, and it says this. But to do so would be speculation, and I don't want to speculate with the Word of God. When we stand up here, if you have the privilege of being able to stand in the pulpit or be able to stand and teach the Word of God, you are proclaiming, thus says God's Word. And we need to make sure that what we're saying is actually from God's word. There are a lot of things we would like it to be or that we might like to see that is taking place in the world, but at the end of the day, there is only one who is sovereign, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that we will remember that as we go through this. These areas in which we might disagree sometimes are called tertiary or third-level doctrines. Some people put it as a second-level but we can still fellowship and know that we will still serve our Savior together for all of eternity, despite disagreeing here. Why is this important? Well, I believe it's important because as we look through this today, there are some who may disagree with me, and that's fine. I welcome you to come and speak with me, to share with me, and if there's something that I am missing in the Scripture, I expect you, as I shared with the congregation when I first came as pastor, I expect you to also hold me accountable to the Word of God. And some of you have already done that this last week, and I am grateful for that. What I share with you today comes from my own personal study of the Word of God for many years. And I believe, though, that my goal remains the same, and that is to point to Jesus Christ first and foremost. In my conclusions, I find that I'm actually in disagreement with some like R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur, A.W. Pink, even Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. But one day we will see clearly and we will fully know what God had in store for his creation. But for now, I believe that we seek to part the veil and see the sign in the heavens before us in this passage. Go with me back to the end of the first century. I want you to consider that you were in one of the seven churches of Asia Minor and you were listening to this scroll, this beautiful vision that the uh, Lord Jesus Christ has given to John and he has written this scroll. It's been, it's been copied and duplicated and it's being passed around along the mail route there, the Roman mail route. And you're sitting in the congregation and you're listening to this being read. Nobody in the first century is thinking of modern technology. There is no 21st century technology to let over-imaginative minds run rampant trying to decipher what John means in the opening of the seals. 
So what does this mean to the listener and why is it important? Early believers read or heard Revelation and they simply believed that God the Son, the Lamb of God, would return. That's worth rejoicing over. We could conclude right there, and I have given you the warning of Scripture. I have warned you of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. This coming future event was the culmination of all that they believed and hoped for. Can you imagine, again, Dad was speaking this morning in the Sunday school class from James chapter 1. And can you imagine what it must have been like for those early New Testament Christians, not knowing when they left their houses in the morning, whether tomorrow morning they were going to be lion food in the Colosseum. They didn't know. They would leave from their homes and they would go to meet in caves or meet in the catacombs underneath the city like Rome or later on Paris developed catacombs and these people would meet there but they did so first of all in fear of their lives but they did so because they wanted to worship and they knew that they were commanded to worship God. With eyes of faith, these early believers waited and worked and watched expectantly to the skies. These events were prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, by Christ himself in the Olivet Discourse found in Matthew 24 and 25, and of course the beloved John. So again, we're in this first century church in Revelation and we're listening to this being read. Can you imagine what they would have thought if we said, hey, it's not going to happen for at least 2,000 more years before everything is going to come to an end, before God is going to call time? Would you not have been discouraged? If we, had not, if we did not have the ability to be able to share with you a certain date or a time or whatever that a lot of people are looking out for, that yes, he is coming, but we think it's going to be... Somebody was mentioning, I think, to Dad this week about... Uh, the, the track that was written, uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. <laughs> well, 1989, January the 1st came, and of course the gentleman had to write another track, and he wrote it, you guessed it, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1989. And after January the 1st, 1990 rolled around, he just gave up. And I think that too many times we get this idea, we try to read things into the scripture and we're looking for a certain date instead of looking for the Savior. Because that's really what our goal is. Looking to see him who was the immortal one, the one who was willing to lay down everything to come to this earth to be able to die on the cross a criminal's death, and then that we might have eternal life. The question that we have today is not actually whether an a, a cataclysmic disturbance will happen as we see in this passage. I believe that just about all Christians agree that this will take place no matter what camp you fall into. Many Christians do not even disagree that Jesus will visibly, physically return just as was promised by the angels in Acts chapter 1. We're not even arguing about whether there will be a rapture as many in different camps hold to because we do believe from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 that the true church will be caught up to be with the Lord. In fact, Paul reminds us, therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
He is coming back. We don't know when, but he is coming back. One commentator wrote, All Christians believe in the rapture. What is unique to the dispensational view is that in their view, the rapture is invisible and secret. Now it is my intention to be able to share how I see the passage today, but I don't want anybody again to have a wrong focus. Listen to this commentary. When studying Revelation and eschatology or end times, it is all too easy to lose sight of the call of Christ in Revelation, which is to live victoriously as overcomers of sin, the world, and the devil, to remain faithful to him at all costs because he will make all things right in the end. Whatever view one thinks best reflects the teaching of Scripture, it must always be kept in mind that Scripture always presents the doctrine of last things as a motivation for faithful living. In the end, as one commentator noted, he draws our attention to the most important eschatological point. Quote, So far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. To motivate our obedience. You see, whatever time it is, whether it's in our lifetime, whether it's not for another 2,000 years that everything that God calls time on, we don't know when that will be. But what we don't want to find ourselves doing is standing before God and being judged for our deeds, knowing that we could have done so much more. As I assure with you, being able to pass out a track, I know that there are some of you here maybe who have never passed out a single track or a single piece of gospel literature in your entire Christian life. That doesn't mean that we dwell on that. We start from where we're at now and move into the future. We don't know what it will take for somebody to be able to hear the gospel, it may be that God will graciously allow you to be the one who has given that. You don't necessarily have to talk with somebody. Lay it on the table. Wherever you go, lay a gospel track down. And, and I'll be the first to admit to you that I don't do a good job of that myself. It's something that I strive to do. It's, I've got tracks in my car. I try to remember to carry tracks with me, but sometimes the day gets so hectic the week gets so hectic, I get to the end of the week and I realize I didn't do what I should have done. I'm going to tell on myself now, this last week, and I'm going to share this with you because I want you to know that I'm also human. Last week I encouraged you and I gave everybody a track to be able to pass out. And guess what I didn't do? I had the opportunity to share the gospel a few times, but I didn't pass out a track. So I got in my car last night, about 9.30, and I drove to the store. And on the way back, I stopped at the gas station. Because I believe, Brother Diego, that the Holy Spirit was convicting me of asking you to do something that I hadn't done myself. And there was nobody in the store except for one woman who was there and I walked in and I got my stuff bought a Pepsi 
Well, it wasn't Pepsi, it was fruit juice. <laughs> I bought that fruit juice and I walked up and I was gonna meet her at the counter and for the first time I saw something that was there and it said self-checkout. Just scan your items and pay. And I thought, I'm not even going to get a chance to see this person. <laughs> they're, they're going around the floor doing the, doing the buffing of the floor. And so when I got done, I thought, well, I tried. I'll just walk out. Holy Spirit said, nope, it's in your pocket. And so I walked up and I got her attention. She stopped her machine. And I said, I just want you to know that I have something here for you to read when you get a chance. I said, and if you don't have anywhere to go, come and visit us at Yellowstone Baptist Church. And she said, thank you, I will read that. I don't know what God will do with that. That doesn't make me special. It just means that I was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage each one of us that we will each be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and how he guides us. After all, Psalm 107 verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And if he has redeemed you, tell somebody else. Give them the good news. So, next Sunday, I give you permission to come up and ask me, Brother Mark, did you pass one out this last week? And I'm going to remember that. Let's move on quickly to these three points that I have this morning. Number one, a cosmic disturbance in verses 12 through 14. In reading a number of commentaries, in the number of commentaries that I read for the message, I was actually surprised that there are many who either do not believe this is an actual event or they try to spiritualize it with past events from the Roman Empire. But as far as timing, again, there has been much speculation in regards to when this will take place, but we know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that before this day, the day of the Lord, or the wrath of God falls, there are two things that must happen. Number one, the great apostasy that is found in the church. Now we were talking about this last night at the Flock Care Leader meeting as we're preparing for this upcoming Sunday. And I want to show you how important theology is in everything that we do. Some of you may know the name Lauren Daigle. She's very popular on the radio right now. She's on K-Love. She's on a number of others. She's written number one hits. And here recently she was asked in regards to her position on the LGBTQ agenda. Now this is a woman who is supposedly a Christian artist. And they asked her, well, what do you believe the Bible says about this? And she said, I don't know. I just have to leave that up to God. And about two months ago, somebody asked her more directly. And she said, God is love. I'm sure God allows us to love who we want. Some of you who are a little older, do you remember the name Ray Bolts? Anybody? Okay. Ray Boltz, another contemporary Christian music artist who about 10, 12 years ago or so now divorced his wife openly, left his family, and went to live and has since married his man partner. Supposed to be a Christian. And then got upset when churches stopped having him come 
But then there were other churches who said, well, he still has good music, so we're still going to have him come so that God can use this. When you start compromising on the areas that the scriptures say there's no compromise on, you will find yourself going down a rabbit hole that you will never recover from. This is why there are so many denominations who once started out so well. And those denominations then gave up a little bit at a time until the slippery slope became a sheer cliff. Secondly, we find from 2 Thessalonians 2 that there will be the revealing of the Antichrist. True believers, though, have no reason to fear this time because we are told that this time will not sneak up on the church like a thief in the night because we are called to be watchful. Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. I will be sharing multiple passages, and I encourage you to write these down in your notes. This passage that we find before us perfectly parallels what John would have heard from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Listen to verse, chapter 24, verse 29 through verse 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he states in the same passage later on that only the Father knows what time it is, the Lord Jesus Christ did know that he was going to come back again. And it is in this that we have our hope from Titus chapter 2. The blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't read the news every single day because it's depressing, Brother Mike. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, everything that is taking place in this world, it is not a pretty picture. But there is something that we can hope for. If you look at your own life, do you hope that your car is going to last for 30, 40 more years? No. Or that your house, you're going to be able to go in Wyoming, in Cheyenne, without having any kind of hail damage? No. Or that your clothes will last indefinitely? No. Even that the food that you have in your cupboard, that you'll be able to save it for a rainy day or for a time of cataclysmic whatever is going to go on in the world and that you can just keep saving it and hopefully it'll be good by then. No, we don't have our hope in that. Our hope is that one day, if we have set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth, that we will be prepared when he returns. And yet, we as Christians sometimes want to hang on tenaciously to what we have down here, thinking it's our best life now. It's not. The best is yet to come. But John here speaks of a great earthquake. In scripture, these show a momentous event or a great disaster such as the earthquake when Christ died or when followed by a second three days later when he rose from the grave or 
What about when the prison was destroyed in Philippi when Paul and Silas were singing in chains? Isaiah chapter 29 verse 6 says, You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. This this is why as Dad shared this morning, we can be confident that no matter what happens, God is still in control. It was it was interesting when we were, Violet and I were in Liberia and West Africa and we were over there when the tsunami hit Japan and they were, the, the people had never seen television, most of them, and we had taken the uh, three or four of the pastors and their wives and they were just staring at this TV and watching the events unfold. And they says, well, what, 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 what can we do? What can we do? I said, you can't do anything. God is showing his might and his power and even the tsunamis, even the natural disasters that take place in the world are under his control. He's the one that keeps the waters in place. He's the one that will allow a mountain to move or not move. And yet these things happen and we begin to wring our hands and wonder what's going to happen. Did God fall asleep up there? No, he didn't. This next section, the sun turns black, the moon turns to blood, and the stars fall from the sky. I honestly do not know what that will look like. I cannot be a a, a portrayer of something that we don't actually see in Scripture. But we have to take what we read here and listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The point is not about what happens in the heavens or the sun, or the moon, or the stars. When these events, whatever they are, in whatever magnitude that they are in, the people of earth will not be debating, well, was that a 8.9 on the Richter scale, or a 10, or what was it? No, they are going to know that the wrath of God has come. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 to 16. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. This was written 2,600 years ago. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Does this sound like a fun time? No. Why are these things coming? Because man in his so-called earthly wisdom has chosen to reject God. But then we find in verse 15 that God is no respecter of persons. Remember that John here is seeing a vision that will take place and he's not seeing a particular person here. I believe that this is the stratum of the world where the events occur. In other words, each person here is representative of a sector of our world. The kings of the earth, I believe, represent the governments that we have. 
You see, when this day occurs and the wrath of the Lamb shows up, the kings of the earth will amount to nothing. The great ones, the nobles and the chief men, the generals, the military might. There won't be any think tanks wondering whether we can beat this person or beat that country or take on whoever it may be in the world. They're all going to be concerned about one thing and that is facing God. You see, when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ myself, for quite some time I was concerned about what my parents would think. After all, I was in Bible college. I was in my second year of Bible college. I was actually teaching and preaching on a regular basis, and yet I didn't know the Lord. And I had not come to the point where the Holy Spirit had revealed to me my biggest concern should be Him, not whether my parent, what my parents think of me. Too often the world wants to take the things of God, belittle them or demean them to the point where they think that they can change God to suit their needs or wants. But we find that even the rich, the powerful, the economic structure, even slave and free, the society as a whole, there will be nobody who will be exempt from this time. Do you see why it's important to share the good news? To share the wonder of the gospel so that people can avoid this? But more importantly, it's it's not just what they will suffer here on this earth, but to escape from the wrath of God. God did not save you. If you're a believer this morning, he did not save you just so that you could have a ticket on the glory train. God saved you from your sin and the penalty of your sin. But let's look finally at the great calamity. Look again at verse 15. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I believe that this event will encompass all that remain on the earth. Rank, government, military power, society, They will all see and the world will see that these things are no longer important. The inhabitants will know and they will experience the wrath of God. The word that is used here is not just speaking or talking or calling out. The word here that he uses is it implores a person for something. In other words, these people who are of all strata across the world of whatever divide, rich, poor, military, government, whatever it may be. These people are now imploring. They are begging. And this word here is defined to implore, to beg someone earnestly or desperately to do something. These same individuals who could have called on the name of the Lord will be begging the inanimate objects of creation to destroy them from the face of the Creator. I can't begin to paint a picture for you that is awful enough for you and I to understand how bad this day is going to be. They will seek, firstly, removal. Fall on us. It's the same phrase that Jesus used on his way to the cross in Luke chapter 22, verse 30. 
And he says, and he warns the people as they are following him, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And here is the Lamb of God going to the cross for sin. They will also seek refuge, hide us. The world will foolishly think that if they can get the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, that they will be able to take refuge from the Lamb, from the wrath of the Lamb. Sadly, I believe that they are going to learn the hard way that when the full wrath of God begins to be poured out from the Lord, that even taking their own lives will only be the beginning of sorrows for nobody can escape. And finally, seeking relief. Who can stand? Psalm 76, verse 7. But you, speaking of God, Yahweh, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? I had somebody recently ask me in regards to sin within their life. And I said, if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will flee from that sin. We are called to flee from those things. Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Old Testament ends almost the same way that the New Testament ends. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. If I was able to predict and tell you what was coming in the future, I don't think that you would believe me. Even if I could write a book. After all, God wrote 66 books all wrapped up into one cover and there are still people sitting in churches today who don't believe what he wrote. I shared with you at the beginning that if there are any questions that you have or you are not sure where you stand before God, today is the day of salvation. To know that you have eternal life, to know that you will not have to face his wrath either here or in eternity. If you can imagine how bad just this little section of six verses is here on this earth, what do you think it will be like in hell? There will be no parties. There will, be not, there will not be any meeting of friends. You will be all by yourself for all of eternity, separated from fellowship with God. That will truly be hell. But what we see in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 through 17, the sign of the skies, I think that those who are here on this earth at that time However, this transpires, however, all of this stuff comes together and shakes out in the end. They will wish that they had hearkened to the voice of God. There will be no misunderstanding when the day of the Lord and his wrath arrives. And while true believers, I can assure you, the promises of God's word is that we are not children of wrath. 
but it will be a great time of woe for those who remain on the earth. As I understand these passages, I believe that the church will be absent from the world and it will be with the Lord at this time. But whenever that day comes, the justice of God will be right. The justice of God will be holy. And the justice of God will be deserved by all who reject Jesus Christ. We used to ask people when I was in the funeral industry and the cemetery industry, we used to use a little illustration when we were trying to help them prepare for the future. After all, we all know that it's coming. And I would ask you the same thing. At the bottom of your paper, I'd be willing to challenge you to write on the bottom, I, your name, guarantee that I will be here and put any date you want to in there. And sign it. And then you take up your lie with God. My friend, I share these things with you in love. I share with you because if you're a believer, it should encourage you to tell others the wonderful news of what Jesus has saved you from. And if you're not a believer, it should scare you when you realize what is coming. You may say, well, I'll wait till then. I'll wait to see what these things are. I'll wait to see what happens and then I will ask God to save me. I believe the Bible is clear in 2 Thessalonians that there will be a delusion, a strong delusion that is sent and you will not be able to believe the truth at that time. It'll be too late. I hope you and I are prepared. One of these days, the Lord is going to return. And every one of you, whether you want to or not, whether you're ready or not, you and I will all stand before God. And you will either stand before him and you will have to fall on your face saying, Christ Jesus is Lord, but he will have to judge you. Or you will be able to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you will stand and fall on your face for all of eternity, rejoicing in the fact that he was willing to save even you. That's the wonder of salvation. It's open to any who will come. I invite you to stand to your feet. I want to share with you the benediction from Jude's little epistle this morning. I was going to have a hymn, but I just want you to give solemn consideration to what I have shared today. Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now 
and forever. And all God's people said,